so Rembrandt, so generally considered one of the greatest visual artists in history, uh, 15th century Dutch painter and printmaker Rembrandt uh, lived with his biblical text as central inspiration for 900 plus uh, exceptional works. The Bible became for him an account of his own life and faith journey, so much so that he actually frequently inserted his own face into the works he produced. He illustrated the narrative of scripture by placing himself within the text as an observer looking on, watching in horror at the stoning of Stephen or staring blankly from the boat on the stormy seas of Galilee. Rembrandt had a unique perspective on the scriptures. He saw the stories as real accounts of real people whose experiences weren't that different from his own. Over the next six weeks, uh, we hope to take some time uh, with a few of these famous works and the associated passages and place ourselves in the stories painted by Rembrandt, asking similar questions of the text, tasting, smelling, and feeling and engaging afresh with its context. So it's going to be a great series. I'm really excited for it. Tonight, we're kicking things off with Mel Mazengard. Mel, do you want to come join me up on stage? Um, so Mel's going to be sharing on the prodigal son. And I'm not going to say any more because I'm going to let you do it. And you're going, to, you're going to give it to us in a very unique way, which I'm very excited about. Thanks, Bernie. But uh, I'll pass things over to Mel and uh, see you guys later. Cool. Well, kia ora and good evening, everyone. Um, it's really great to be here tonight, even under such unique circumstances. I trust you're all snuggled up at home on your couches, in your bed, in your pyjamas, in your slippers, with your cups of tea, um, tuning in live with us tonight. Well, my name is Melissa, and I'm currently living in Auckland with my husband, Dan, and we've got a little toddler called Jimmy and another little boy on the way in about four weeks' time, uh, which is going to make for some really busy times ahead of that, I'm very, very sure. Two, two little terrors under two. Um, well, I was really excited when the Sunday night team said that they were going to be doing a series on the works of Rembrandt, because Rembrandt himself had quite an incredible life uh, that was more often than not marked by uh, intense periods of pain and despair uh, and sometimes uh, controversy. These seasons of his life were reflected in his paintings, and in particular, as Bernie just said, through his self-portraits. When Rembrandt died at the age of 63, he died a poor and a lonely man. And tonight we're going to be looking at one of the last paintings Rembrandt ever completed, and that is the painting of The Return of the Prodigal Son. A print of this painting sits at home on my living room wall. Uh, about five years ago, I was really captivated with this painting, uh, along with a book written by a, a man called Henri Nouwen. And the title of his book is um, The Return of the Prodigal Son, A Story of Homecoming. It's Nouwen's reflections on both this painting and, and the passage that inspired this work in the Gospel of Luke. So if you're in self-isolation at the moment, or you're bored due to a lack of entertainment options, um, have a break from Netflix and take the opportunity to read this book. It's really, really very rich and very wonderful. I try and um, pick it up each year. Um, in response to Nan's book and Rembrandt's painting, I wrote a sort of spoken word sermon that I shared at BBC about five years ago now. And um, that, with a few adjustments, is what I'll be sharing again with you tonight. 
But before I get into that, let's open God's word and turn to the Gospel of Luke to read the story Jesus shared about a father and his two sons. This is Luke 15, verses 11 to 32. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Amen. I'll just put it back onto the image of the painting. Well, Henri Nouwen's book is titled The Return of the Prodigal Son, which advises that if there was a homecoming, there must have been a home leaving. And if there was much joy in his returning, it means there must have been much sadness in his departing. 
If we rewind the clock about 2,000 years, we're within the context in which this parable was shared. The son goes to his father, the one who cared for and loved him so, and asks for his inheritance so that he had the means to go. In this period of time, this request was unheard of and offensive, and in radical contradiction to the most venerated tradition, you see, in asking for an inheritance he had no right to until his father's death, he is saying to his father, I am wishing you were dead. We can assume, therefore, that this hurtful act of the son leaving was far more offensive than it seems at first reading, but this hurtful action poses the question of why did the son leave home? Home is a place where I dwell with my father. Home is a place where I hear my father's voice. Home is a place where I rest in the knowledge that I am his child. Home is where I know I am indeed carved in the palms of God's hands and hidden in their shadows. And it's those same hands that hold me safe in an internal embrace. Home is the center of my being. It's that inner place inside my core where I rest in the knowledge of him telling me, you are my beloved. On you my favor rests. Leaving this home is living as though I do not yet have a home and must look far and wide to find one. But why would I leave the place where I know my father's voice? Because in this world, there are other voices. These voices sell me the idea that I can obtain love far more satisfying than the love I have at home, and so off to the distant country I now roam. At first, the voices are tantalizing. Happiness comes quick, easy, and fast. I can get quick satisfaction and easy gratification with cheap thrills, a few friends, and the happy feeling at the bottom of the glass. It comes by ensuring I have a successful doting partner, but don't think that relationship will be happily ever after because happiness comes in being free in spirit and in mind, and you don't want to be tied down or backed by some marital grind. Happiness is also achieved when I've reached that perfect bodily shape, and I've covered myself in the latest clothing some sweatshop has to make. It comes in an overeating, undereating, clean eating diet. If it promises a quick fix, then we'll be sure to try it. Happiness comes in self-care, which is caring for the self, achieved through Netflix, Uber Eats, and nights in on the couch. Happiness comes when we're bathed within our phone lights, scrolling through the highlights. Have I got that angle right? Do I make a jealous sight, hoping we can be liked? Maybe if I get this right, I'll be loved. It comes in climbing up the career expectations, climbing aboard to new travel destinations, curating our Instagrams so that they climb up with followers, climbing the fence to ensure we've beaten the Joneses. And so we wander around the distant country, clothed in the exact uniform and cooking the exact recipe that the world tells us is happiness. But these voices start to grow sinister. These voices are loud and they're full of promises and they're extremely seductive. They begin to tell me I must prove myself by being successful, 
popular, powerful, and productive, they start to reach those inner places where I question my goodness and my self-worth. They suggest I'm unlovable unless I've earned it through determination and hard work. They want me to prove to myself that I'm worthy to be the one that God calls beloved. They want me to work to ensure I've earned the place where my sins can now be covered. They keep pushing me to do everything possible to gain some form of acceptance. And even when I think I've made it, the voices require more and I'm still rejected. You see, I've left home because I lost faith in the one who gives me the love I unknowingly require. And I follow the voices that offer a greater variety of ways to win the love I so much desire. My happiness starts to depend on whether or not the world loves me. After all, that's what I was looking for all along. But I'm so far into this obtaining things to get happiness that surely the world can't be wrong. In his book, The Prodigal Son, Henri Nouwen rightly says, we are like a small boat on the ocean at the mercy of its waves. And the waves of people's opinion rock my tiny boat and life turns not into a holy struggle but an anxious struggle to stay afloat. A little criticism makes me angry. A little rejection makes me depressed. A little praise raises my spirits and I get excited by a little success. The ocean seems unstable. I'm subjected to whether or not I can please and all my emotional energy gets used in not drowning in these seas. My life becomes unsteady. I feel utterly alone. And these are the results of leaving my father's stable home. But I keep running around asking the world, do you love me? Do you really love me? You see, the world's love is conditional. It's a world that's filled with ifs. If you do that, I will love you. I'll accept you if you do this. And if I ask the world if it loves me, I'm ensuring to the world I remain a slave. Attempting to find acceptance and failing all the way to my grave, I take the gifts that God has given me and use them to impress, to compete, and to seek praise. I put them in service of a world instead of a God who deserves the glory of them all of my days. I must be smarter, better, fitter, more hardworking. These voices continue to tell you, and I carry these gifts to a distant country to a world that doesn't know their true value. I am the prodigal every time I search for unconditional love where it cannot be found. I'm back in my boat subject to the waves of opinion instead of at home on stable ground. There comes a point in this cycle when we're exhausted, overwhelmed, despondent, and sad. Because these voices have taken every ounce of energy we have, and they have never given back. The prodigal had to lose everything he had to realize he had everything he wanted before he had everything he thought that he needed to be loved. In his grief, his friends didn't play him the slightest bit of interest. And to the world, he had now lost his existence because he had no money left or gifts left to give. And the world filtered him out like liquid through a sieve, and he found himself now making a home with the pigs, and he was wallowing. But in that wallowing, he remembered. Oh, how he remembered his father's servants who ate better than he. And he knew that his journey was fruitless and hopeless and wrapped up in selfish misery. He remembered his father's voice. He remembered the father who loved. The father who said, 
This is my son. On you, my favor rests. You see, the journey home begins when we remember our sonship. That we must remember. We must believe this because it's easy to get caught up in self-pity. We find comfort not in a God who is with us, but in the familiarity of wallowing in our misery. Both Peter and Judas denied Jesus, and both were left in a state of despair. But only Peter returned to the Lord with much sadness and was received with great love and great care. Don't keep wallowing in the mud with the swine because the homecoming is a beautiful thing. The journey home, though, is a long one, as it is for most, because We're not instantly rid of the voices that reappear like unwanted ghosts. The prodigal wrestles on his way home and develops a conversation with his father. He'll say to him, I'm not worthy to be your son anymore. I'll be a slave in your house if you rather. And as we dwell on the prodigal's innermost mind, I can't help but reflect on how similar it is to mine. You see, we are seldom without some role play in our head where I might explain, boast, proclaim, defend. I'll evoke pity, apology, adversity, or praise. I'll pretend to be the victim. I'll attempt to seek fame. It seems we're perpetually involved in long dialogues with absent partners, anticipating their questions and preparing our answers. And I'm amazed by the energy that goes into these inner ruminations and murmurings and thoughts. Why the lengthy mental dialogues, though? Why do we converse with ourselves like this? Perhaps it's because the hardest thing for us to accept was God's unconditional forgiveness. The son knew he was going back, but didn't believe his father would wholly accept him. He never thought he would become an heir again in the dust Behind him would be his sin, but if only we could have one glimpse of the father's face in that moment. No disapproval or condemnation, just love and joy in his eyes. Losing all inhibition, this father runs, runs, runs towards us as though we're his only prize. And he cries, my son was lost, but he is found. My son has returned home where he belongs. Let us celebrate by killing the fattened calf and celebrate with songs because my son was dead and now he is alive. Do we deserve the homecoming and celebration? No, not by any means, but the beautiful picture of what God did on the cross unravels in this scene. You see, Jesus got what I deserve so that we get what he deserves, which means that it's by his compassion, love, and grace we find ourselves in his place. And by no account of our own have we been welcomed back home, which means all glory belongs to God and we seek none of our own. And life at home begins to look very different. Home is the center of my being, where it's God's audible voice I hear, 
where I can walk in the valley of darkness and no evil will I fear. As the beloved being home, I can confront, console, admonish and encourage without fear of being rejected or needing affirmation from others. I can be persecuted without the desire for revenge. I can be content with what I have, rejecting comparisons with friends. I can receive praise without using it as proof for my goodness. I can walk in the freedom of living in God's fullness. Home is the never interrupted voice of love speaking from eternity, giving life and love whenever it's heard to set our captive hearts free. The prodigal thought freedom would be found in a world he desired to taste, unaware the freest he would ever be is with the Father who gave him his freedom in the first place. And the Father, he knows we have wandered, but in his infinite mercy, he welcomes us home again and again and again. And so we move our eyes away from the younger son in Rembrandt's painting to the character on the side who is withdrawn, observant, waiting. This is the elder son looking on at his father's embrace. But no warmth or joy or love is displayed on this man's face. He stands apart, withdrawn, away, arms folded and fingers clasped. Perhaps this family reunion is more complex than we first grasped. The younger son left home squandering and abusing his place as a son. The elder stayed home and worked under no compulsion to run. And while the return of the prodigal son in both title and meaning are true, perhaps this parable and painting depicts not one lost son, but two. It is difficult for me to accept that the elder son might well be me. A dutiful life-fulfilling obligations has resulted in being increasingly unfree. The younger son left home to seek happiness at what became an incredible cost. The elder, however, did the right things exteriorly, but interiorly became just as lost. Perhaps we as elders have forgotten that we first came home only by his grace and mercy, and our default human nature tells us we now have to work very hard to be deemed as worthy. And we work hard. We do right and say right. We look right and pray right. We serve and assist. We sign up and enlist. We devote ourselves to theology. We're singing the right doxology. We're baking and donating a life of service we're creating. We're in life groups, care groups, coffee groups, volunteer groups. We read the right books, raise our hands in right moments, work relentlessly at loving our friends and opponents. We give of ourselves till we've got nothing left, overkill our use of the hashtag blessed. We're committed and reliable. Our faithfulness is undeniable. We are diligent. We won't stray. We always know the right thing to say. We're busy out there working and plowing the Father's business, so consumed by the field that we're unsure where the Father is, but we hope in the process we'll be honoured and praised, that people will applaud us, that people will be amazed. They'll acknowledge our hard work. They'll say, look at them go, that we're applauded for our service and the work we've got to show, and then we're not. But the wayward son is celebrated. 
the one who chose to roam, the one who you think lacks integrity is thrown a party when he gets home, the one who is irresponsible is receiving more attention, the one who didn't work hard is receiving more affection, the runaway is given a feast that has never been given to you. And so the only conclusion to make is you're the lesser loved of the two. Unable to grasp that the father's heart is not divided into more or less, our need for affirmation turns siblings into those we measure against. And oh, how we measure. And oh, how we compare. When we hear of someone being celebrated, we wonder when our turn will come. When we hear of someone receiving awards, we wonder whether we could have won. When we hear of the goodness in others, we wonder if we are just as good. When we hear of someone succeeding, we wonder whether or not we could. The eldest son, so lost at home, sees all this as unfair. The eldest son, so jealous at home, can do nothing but compare. But the saddest part of the eldest son's journey is that he couldn't participate in his father's joy. In his jealousy, hurt, and anger, this party is something he'd rather avoid. You see, bitterness, resentment, and hurt now set him and his father apart. And resentment is so pernicious and damaging to the fragile human heart. But the father comes out and says, My son, you've been with me all along. Let us go together and be joyful, for your brother has been gone for so long. But join in, he says, no. The hurt and anger is simply too strong. The son of yours has squandered your property with lavish living and prostitutes. You welcoming him home and throwing him a party is something I can only dispute. You see, as the elder, you cannot join in on the fun because joy and resentment cannot coexist. When we listen to the self-pitying, jealous words the elder son shared to express his point of view, we realize his hurt comes from a heart that feels it never received what it was due. It is a hurt expressed in a subtle way, forming a bedrock of human resentment. I've tried so hard, worked so long, yet failed to receive any form of attention. I have not been thanked, not honoured, and still not have received what others get so easily. I have not asked nor wanted, yet more attention is given to those who take life so casually. You see, we crave communion with our Father, and it's the thing we seem to think we lack, and we work hard toward it and become bitter, forgetting that communion union with him we already have. Often we think of this lostness in terms of actions that are quite visible, quite easy to recognize. The younger son sinned in a way in a manner that we can easily identify. It was a classical human failure with a straightforward resolution, quite easy to understand and sympathize his sin under no illusion, the lostness of the elder though is harder for us to deal to because this lostness has attached itself to the underside of our virtue. It is good to work hard 
and serve on our Father's land. It is good to honour others and lend a helping hand. We are called to a life of honouring the Lord and obeying His commands. And we genuinely desire to live a life that is pleasing to our God. But this all becomes slavery if we're trying to earn our way to Jesus because we've forgotten that our home with Him was freely given to us. My healing comes when I remember the Father left the party to remind me I'm already at home. When we remember we are at home, our hardened hearts melt away. As we look into the eyes of a father who cherishes, adores and forgave, the father comes to find you and says, come join in on all of this. My grace abounding to you is something I don't want you to miss. And what a beautiful sight it would be if the eldest son in the painting started to move. And like a balm over a calloused heart, God's mercy starts to soothe. The standoff pose starts to relax and fearful thoughts he begins to lose. His oiled elbows started unfolding, the hardened eyes melted away, his coiled fingers started to open and hands went up in praise. And in this mighty image of God's mercy, this brother started to engage because he remembered he was already at home and in communion with our Father. And everything the Father has is already his. As the elder remembering we're home, we're no longer crippled by resentment. We are joyful, playful, loving, leading a life full of contentment. We are not burdened and bound by working our way toward God because serving Him is loving Him, not working in a dutiful slog. We are free to receive critique without needing to be critical back. We do not feel jealous of the joy in others that we sometimes seem to lack. We need not be offended by or suspicious of other people's motives for we are secure at home because our Father is our main focus. We can enter into that joy that God calls us to so readily. We let the love of God, not our own efforts, become our place of healing. And when people are receiving the praise you thought that you were due, we practice gratitude because we trust that Jesus holds our futures too. We can joyfully serve the Lord without comparing our efforts to others. We can forgive, accept, and welcome home the wayward brothers. And when I again start to work toward the salvation God has freely given me in you, I remember I'm already home and that God went looking not just for the younger son, but for the elder son too. The thing that I've loved about this painting is that the divine is captured in the most human. But the story moves beyond the sons, better articulated by Henri Nouwen, who says, a child does not remain a child. A child becomes an adult. An adult becomes a mother and a father. When the prodigal returns home, he returns not to remain a child, but to claim his sonship and become a father himself. Becoming the father is therefore the conclusion of tonight's reflections. The father is a father who celebrates, who sees joy in the small and intimate. A father who mourns and, and grieves for a broken world, but still chooses to see joy in it. 
a God who rejoices when one sinner returns home, which statistically isn't interesting, but numbers never seem to matter to God because he celebrates the small things. You see, we are ready and prepared for bad news, to read about wars and violence, to expect dishonesty, pain and crime, to expect disarray and conflict. We expect people to talk about pain, problems, anguish and depression. We want to hear about their failures and judge whether or not they've learnt their lesson. We are disappointed when the world isn't filled with newspaper news because we want sensationalism, to hear of heartache and conflicting points of views. It is easy for us to choose cynicism over joy again and again and again. But the Father, he knows there's pain, so he comforts and chooses to love and see joy instead. Here lies the greatest challenge on the journey to being the Father, not remaining the Son, which is not to look with the eyes of my own low self-esteem, but with the eyes of God's love through the eyes of one who chooses to see the good in people's lives, through the eyes of one who cares for those caught in sin, pain, and lies. But do I want to be the father? Do I want to be not just the one who is being forgiven, but also the one who forgives? Not just the one being welcomed home, but also the one who welcomes in. Not just the one who receives compassion, but the one who offers it as well. This is a very hard call. And some of us will remain children all of our lives. For we are heirs with Christ, but do we really want to be an heir with all that it implies? Because being in the Father's house requires that I make the Father's life my own. And I have to believe that all human heart desires can now be found at home. Is the discipline to be free from the desire and need to wander in Rome, dear, to trust that fulfillment comes when welcoming our brothers home? I have to dare to carry the responsibility of a spiritually adult person. I have to be forgiving loving and trusting, pulling back my safe little curtain, free to receive others' burdens without need for evaluation, categorizing or criticism. We choose to celebrate good that pierces dark moments. We choose joy instead of cynicism. We are not ignorant of the famine, heartache, wars and pain that plague our land. But the Father doesn't have to wait until all is well to celebrate every little hint of the kingdom that is at hand. We choose joy because of the Father's grace. Sometimes there is a level of loneliness in this fatherhood. There's no success, popularity or power. But that same place of loneliness is also where freedom and spiritual strength is found. I have to let the rebellious and resentful son step up to receive the forgiving love the Father offers me. Then both sons can be transformed into the Father, and then so slowly and gradually, this transformation leads me to the fulfillment of the, de of the deepest desires of my restless heart. Because what greater joy can there be for us than to stretch out our tired arms and welcome home? just as we have been. Friends, we are lost sons and we are lost daughters who are all looking for our way home. Whether we are lost in resentment or we're in the distant country all alone, we must remember, please remember that God says, my beloved, 
is you. And while you're searching and wandering, remember the Father is looking and searching for you too. And one day, we'll be truly home with our Father. And we'll be singing, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wayward son like me. For I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was in bondage, but now I'm free.